Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine, and on today's show, we revisit one of the oldest immigration detention centers on the West Coast, where immigrants complained about conditions a century ago. They're greeted by an American doctor wearing a long white lab coat, and the doctor says to each group in turn, strip, take off your clothes. And we hear about one of the biggest challenges facing first-time political candidates, where to plant your campaign signs. The next day, my opponent put out another sign right next to mine. It's just really irritating. But first, the story behind an iconic California salad dressing. We can't ignore how there's something really enchanting about the phrase, the green goddess. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. California is the birthplace of so many iconic dishes, from chipino to Mai Tais to the fortune cookie. So here on the California Report magazine, we're going to bring you the origin stories of some of those classics with a new series we're calling Golden State Plate. Starting here at the historic Palace Hotel in downtown San Francisco. Welcome to the Palace Hotel. So now we're inside the garden court of the Palace Hotel, which is basically like a huge room under a giant skylight. It's got chandeliers hanging from the ceiling, ornate decorations on the walls, these pillars with golden swirls holding up the walls of the room. And this restaurant here was the birthplace of a pretty famous California recipe, green goddess dressing. Then you got your mustard. So the chef's name is Juan Rojas, and he's called the executive banquet chef of the Palace Hotel. We're in the kitchen, and he's throwing a whole lot of stuff into a blender. He's got ice, he's got pasteurized eggs, whole grain mustard, shallots, capers. A lot of green. And then there's also chives, spinach, fresh tarragon, vinaigrette, chopped parsley, salt and pepper, some olive oil, and a little lemon juice. That's it. That's how you make your uh, green goddess vinaigrette. So this recipe is really a far cry from the original one that they invented in this kitchen about 100 years ago. That one was heavy on the mayo and the sour cream and they served it on a canned artichoke, which was considered very luxurious in those days. Today, I'm having lunch with Renee Roberts. She's worked at this hotel for a long time, both in and out of the kitchen. 
I mean, if you wear a green dress to work, everybody's calling you the green goddess. It's just kind of a thing around here. (laughs) And Laura Borman, who's a food writer, her new book is called Iconic San Francisco Dishes, Drinks, and Desserts. So as you can imagine, she knows a lot about the history of California culinary inventions. Makes you feel sort of automatically connected to that history, I find. You know, my imagination runs wild when I have the the famous salad and I think about all of the other people who've sat at these tables and done the same thing. This is a very fancy hotel and back in the day a lot of well-known and very wealthy people used to stay here including an opera star named Luisa Tetrazzini. The hotel claims to have invented turkey Tetrazzini named after her. And Green Goddess Dressing was inspired by another famous guest, an actor named George Arliss. He was the lead actor in this 1920s play called The Green Goddess. And while he was staying at the Palace Hotel for a performance, they decided to throw a banquet for him. And our chef at the time, Philippe Romare, created the special dressing to be served on the starter salad. And the rest literally is history. I mean, the fact that we're still talking about this over 100 years later is pretty impressive. We can't ignore how there's something really enchanting about the phrase, the green goddess. So the name green goddess from the movie actually comes from what? There was a goddess character? There was a green idol kind of thing, right? That's about as much as I know. It's a a complicated (laughs) storyline. Yeah. It's complicated. After the play finished, there were two film versions of The Green Goddess. And in them, this British white guy, George Arliss, starred as an Indian Maharaja. Does your highness speak English? Oh, yes. A little. All the other actors were white, too, and they portrayed some Indians as savages. They had them, like, running around in afros, waving swords. And the green goddess was basically a made-up deity in a bad Hollywood version of a Hindu temple. This is what the famous California salad dressing is named after. It's kind of a blow to me because I love this dressing and I grew up buying it at the health food store thinking about it like hippie salad dressing to like put on a salad with sunflower seeds and carrots. But my family's Hindu. My dad is from India. Sometimes digging into California food history isn't so savory. But Green Goddess, it's a California classic because of the things that make it so Californian, the fresh herbs, the obsession with Hollywood celebrity. I'm still trying to work through the fact that something so seemingly innocent as salad dressing can carry baggage. But then our salads arrive, and I'm faced with this big mountain of fresh crab on a bed of shaved zucchini on one side of the plate, some greens on the other side of the plate, and this gravy boat full of electric green dressing. This is your green goddess Mm. dressing. Thank you. 
Despite the problematic name, the dressing is really good. It's so clean and bright. The flavors of all that herb, and it's so herbaceous and wonderful. I love it. It's, it's so California. It really so is. California. But you don't need to spend $40 on a salad at the Palace Hotel to try Green Goddess dressing. You can find it pretty much anywhere at any supermarket, or you can make it yourself. We've got the recipe at CaliforniaReport.org. Green Goddess Dressing is just one of the many recipes that got its start here in California. Next week, the story of the French dip sandwich, which was born in L.A. As environmental leaders and political activists from around the world have gathered in San Francisco to talk about strategy on climate change, we've been asking different Californians to tell us how they relate very personally to the issue. This week, we hear from Annie Kahane. She's a dance instructor and a poet. A friend was throwing a summer solstice party and asked Annie to write a poem. But she found that challenging. Here's the next installment in our series, This Moment on Earth. This is Annika Haynes' moment. It was in the middle of the drought, and I was having a hard time celebrating summertime because all the creek beds were dry, and the swimming holes that I grew up swimming in were low, and you couldn't go swimming. If you grow up in Northern California, it's very temperate. The seasons are pretty mild. But even so, like, can you imagine living in a world where there was literally no change in what it felt like from December to July? We frame memory in terms of the period of time when something occurred. We think about whether it was cold, if we were indoors, if we were laying in the sun. And so the idea that those things might be lost is what the poem is about. We are flying through an ash cloud, not to mention the 15 other rebellions the earth has staged since last summer, pounding on our clean white doors, ignored and shouting while we sit, sipping streamed television with our Coca-Cola, and I'm wondering how we forgot to save ourselves, how, when there is so much time for so much else, so many carefully orchestrated group photographs, Amazon deliveries, and dry cleaning, do we shake our heads in mild and detached horror, exclaim, and come together only for a moment when our town is on fire and still drive alone each day across the Bay Bridge, bemoan the traffic as if the two are unrelated, just a few thousand friendly halfway harmonizers blowing whistles from the comfort of the air conditioning. So I'm praying for the endurance of my favorite way of mapping time. I'm praying that the grass does not dissolve out of the hills and that my someday daughter has a wild tree-covered hill to climb and that we will not arrange a future where the history books have chapters for the fourth grade about what seasons were like. We've been hearing a lot of stories lately about immigrant detention centers and how California has been pushing back against the federal government when it comes to immigration policy. 
But one of the oldest detention facilities in the nation actually sits right in the middle of the San Francisco Bay. It's a marker of a time when California wasn't so welcoming to immigrants. Marisol Medina Cadena brings us the story of one man keeping this little-known history alive. Angel Island State Park is just a short ferry ride away from San Francisco's wharf. Most visitors come here to bike, picnic, and catch a stunning glimpse of the Golden Gate Bridge. But there's also some compelling history here that most visitors don't even know about. It requires a steep but short climb and a trek over to a hidden cove. Then you'll find a place often called the Ellis Island of the West. Good morning. I'm Joe Chan, a volunteer docent here. At 76, Joe nimbly darts up the hill, leading a group of a dozen visitors. He begins his tour in front of a large bronze bell. It marks where cargo ships carrying immigrant passengers used to dock. The U.S. immigration station was open on Angel Island from 1910 until 1940, primarily to enforce the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. First law designed specifically to keep a group of people from freely entering the United States. California actually pushed hard for the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act. The Golden State also had its own laws targeting the Chinese. They had to pay higher taxes, couldn't own land, or attend public schools. Joe leads us up to a pair of concrete steps that immigrants climbed after they got off the ship. So inside the admin building, they're greeted by an American doctor wearing a long white lab coat. And the doctor says to each group in turn, strip, take off your clothes. Immigrants had to give a stool sample and undergo a humiliating medical examination. If you were sick, you had to pay for your own medical treatment. If you couldn't afford it, you were deported. If you were not sick, you continued on through the maze of the administration building and up the covered stairway and into the barracks where you'd wait for your interrogation. That's right, an interrogation. People arriving from China had to explain why they were exempt from the Chinese Exclusion Act. There were some exceptions for merchants, clergy, or children of U.S. citizens. And then there was a loophole. At 5.13 on the morning of April 18, 1906, the city of San Francisco was rocked by an earthquake of frightening proportions. The quake destroyed the city's Hall of Records, including countless birth certificates. And some smart Chinese man stands up proudly and says, I was born right here. And oh, by the way, I have five sons in China I want to bring over here because that was allowed under the Exclusion Act. And you guys can't prove otherwise because I lost my birth certificate in the Great Fire of 1906. So many Chinese people already here seized the opportunity by claiming they were U.S. citizens with children back in China. And hopeful immigrants paid large sums of money to pretend they were those children, called paper sons or paper daughters. While sailing across the Pacific, they would memorize their new identities, because once they got to Angel Island, they would have to answer hundreds of questions. And so would their sponsoring relatives. What's the name of your village? Where is it located? Is there a wall around your village? What's it made out of? What's the, the interrogations the were so detailed that some Chinese had to stay on Angel Island for as long as six months. Compare that to the average stay on Ellis Island for European immigrants, just two to three hours. Who lives next door to you on your left? How many pigs do they own? 
Joe knows these were actual questions because he dug up the records from his own father's interrogation. This is my father's certificate of identity, and uh, he entered in 1926 at the age of 15. It's now part of the museum, and there's also a document from his mom's detention here in 1940. She was actually a U.S. citizen, born in Detroit, just returning from a stay in China. For most of his life, Joe never knew that his dad was the paper son who came through Angel Island. It was a family secret. For his whole life, he was looking over his shoulder for the immigration officials to come knocking on the door. And he didn't want me to be implicated in that. Joe didn't learn any of this until after his dad died. Now, Joe wants all Californians to know what happened here. Because this is not a a, a personal story. This is an American story. It's bleak inside the detention barracks. They're filled with rows of metal bunk beds. Joe says the larger rooms were meant to house less than 60 people, but officials usually cram 200 inside. The Immigration Service thought the Chinese were a hardy peasant stock used to sleeping on the ground in China. They didn't need mattresses, but enough complaints arose that mattresses and pillows were soon uh, brought forth. Detainees also rioted until officials agreed to serve Chinese food. When we reach the end of the tour, Joe pauses and asks us to think how history might be repeating itself. Consider what our immigration future should be like. Should we be more exclusive, as we've done in the past, trying to keep more people out of this country? Or should we be more inclusive and try to allow more people to come to this country? The future's up to us. It's up to all of us. Thank you for coming. Joe Chan doesn't do this for applause. He just wants to keep this history alive, especially since previous generations were too scared to talk about it. So he'll continue to make the tough hike up to the immigration station, persuading people to follow along and learn what really happened here. For the California Report, I'm Marisol Medina Cadena at Angel Island. A lot of us with immigrant roots have been digging into our family histories to find out how and why our families came to California. That's the idea behind our series, Letter to My California Dreamer. We've been asking listeners to write a letter to one of the first people in your family who came to the Golden State with a dream. This week, we hear from Sonia Prasad Quesada. She's got a lot of rich family history from many cultures. Her dad's from India, her mom's Japanese-American, and she's married to a Filipino-American. This letter is to her Japanese grandfather. Dear Oji-chan, In 1929, you embarked on a journey that promised economic opportunity in America. You were just 19 years old. You left the family farm in Fukuoka, Japan, in hopes of getting a higher education and someday working in an office. But the Immigration Act of 1924 heavily restricted Japanese immigration into the United States. So when you got to San Francisco, immigration officials ushered you onto a train bound for Mexico where you had bought 10 acres for $1,000. But the deal was a hoax, and you had been swindled. So you stayed in Mexico, and you labored on a fishing boat. Later, you located a family friend in California, 
and after a perilous border crossing made your way back to San Francisco. There, you met, courted, and married my grandmother. The two of you settled into a small apartment on Union Street above your newly opened dry cleaning business. The California dream was blossoming in ways you'd never imagined. But after Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor, Executive Order 9066 dismantled your life and shattered your dreams. Within three months, you, your wife and son, were herded into internment camps, along with 120,000 other people of Japanese descent. Like your wife and son, two-thirds of them were American citizens. After three years of enduring squalid conditions, sweltering heat, and killing frost at Topaz, the internment camp they called the Jewel of the Desert, you and your family were finally released from that dusty desert prison. You then ventured to Chicago to find a job. Through hard work, you were able to buy a business and a house. In 1961, you returned to California and settled in Palo Alto, where Obachan, my grandmother, still lives. She's 101 years old. I miss you, Oji-chan. Although you never realized your dreams of getting a college education or a coveted office job, your hard work and commitment to family paved the way for your descendants to realize our dreams. Many of us are still here in California. We forged careers in government and military service, business, technology, journalism, academia, and pastoral ministry, to name a handful. You'd be proud, but more importantly, your quiet strength and kindness still characterize three generations of family that have come after you. Love, Sonia. A letter from Sonia Prasad Quesada from Redwood City to her grandfather. We'd love to hear your letter to one of your family's California dreamers. Maybe even you were the first in your family to come to California with a dream. Check out the form we've got on californiareport.org. Take a few minutes to tell us your story, and we might ask you to record it to air here on the California Report magazine. And now we're going to meet a woman who's trying to make the leap into politics as a first-time candidate this election season. Janelle Horn is a mom to four young kids in El Dorado County. Her goal? To go from being a mortgage loan officer to being the one who records mortgages and other important transactions as the county's recorder clerk. She wants to disrupt what she calls the good old boys club in local politics. We've asked her to keep an audio diary chronicling her campaign for a project we're calling The Long Run, about women running for office for the first time. Let's take a listen as Janelle tells us about some of the practical challenges candidates like her can face. Hey there, this is Janelle Horn and I'm running for recorder clerk in El Dorado County. I just spoke at the California Republican Assembly here in El Dorado County. 
I was very nervous giving this speech because um, in this room of people were people who know my opponent, have worked with him in the past, um, because he is very involved in our uh, Republican Party here in El Dorado County. He's actually the Central Committee Chairman. And so my goal going into this forum was not to get the endorsement. It was really just to split that vote so that they could not give an endorsement, actually keeping it from my opponent. So, um, which I'm very, very excited. I did exactly that and, um, and excited to see what's to come. The sign wars have started, which is quite irritating. My opponent had his signs out um, a couple days before me, and he decided to put it up on top of the hill, and my husband and I decided to put it down the bottom of the hill, and of course, the next day, my opponent put out another sign right next to mine, and it's just really irritating. So <laughs> those are the things that happen that are frustrating. My husband's frustrated. We spend time on trying to decide where's the best spot. And then, you know, it's kind of like they steal your thunder. Also, uh, Monday was uh, my husband actually had the day off. So we decided to uh, fit some family time in. That's the struggle of trying to campaign, work, and manage family time. We are still looking for sign locations, and so I had a supporter who owns a property uh, said we can put a sign up, but he recommended that we ask, because it's being leased, to ask the see if it was okay. The gentleman basically said, you know, well, what is she registered as? And my committee member went on to say, you know, this is a nonpartisan office and that shouldn't matter and this and that. And he basically got upset and said, you know, that's not the question I asked you. I asked you, what is she registered as? And my committee member said, well, both of the candidates are registered Republican. And he said, well, I'm a Democrat and no, you cannot put a sign here. This is a nonpartisan office. It shouldn't matter what you're registered as. It should matter of who you are, your experience and what you bring. And this is just a huge struggle that it's difficult to overcome with people who are not registered the same as me. This is my update for Saturday, the August 25th. I'm just here to let you know that I have some very, very exciting news. I received a phone call earlier this week from the Placerville Union One, which uh, is basically all the employees in our county, excluding the Sheriff's Department. And they said that I got their endorsement. I am so, so excited. Their pack met and I am getting a $2,000 donation, which is huge. So I am so thankful. Um, I have learned so much about myself. I've learned so much about my community 
and how our government works and how corrupt it is. And um, it's just, wow, it's been interesting. But I've met so, so many people through this process. It's been a huge blessing overall. Janelle Horn, who's running for recorder clerk in El Dorado County. Next week, we'll hear from Mayel Jenkins. She's trying to make her political debut on the school board in Sacramento County. You can hear from more women first-time candidates in this series on Facebook. Just look for The Long Run, KQED. And that's the California Report magazine. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director is Susie Racho. Our technical producer is Seal Muller. And this week we had additional engineering help from Rob Spate and Katie McMurrin. Our senior editor is Victoria Maleon. David Marks is our online producer. And our intern is Marisol Medina Cadena. Our team includes Bianca Taylor, Carrie Feibel, Becky Hogue, Kat Snow, Katie Orr, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Block Construction, a builder committed to enhancing communities in the Bay Area and Central Coast. B-L-A-C-H dot com. Block Construction. Together, building greatness. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest.